Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Free Lutheran Church Sermon Archive. It's our hope that this message would encourage you in your faith and would help you to get to know God's love, grace, and mercy in a personal way. If you have any questions on the sermon or would like to know more about Maranatha, please visit us on the web at maranathafreelutheran.com or call our church office at 218-498-2808. Thank you, and may God bless. Good morning, Maranatha. Good to see each one of you this morning. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Recently, the, uh, the CDC released some new data uh, on the average life expectancy for men and women in the United States. They do, this, they do this every year or so. They update these numbers based on the median um, age of death. And because of the COVID moment, these numbers were, that were released this year were, as anticipated, down a little bit. Uh, on average, the CDC reports that men are expected to live 73.2 years, 73.2 years, and women, again, on average, are expected to live about 79.1 years. That's just the average over, overall. And now, if you're, if you're sharp, if you're paying attention, you probably noticed, again, on average, that women outlive men by six years. So much for gender equality, right? <laughs> I want my six extra years. <laughs> but, but really, this gap, this gap is nothing new. Uh, women have traditionally, again, on average, lived longer than men. And, and it's probably due to a combination of, of facts which lower the median age of death for us guys, right? Traditionally, men have been the ones who have gone off to war. Uh, men have often worked uh, dangerous, demanding jobs. Uh, we are, by nature, I think, bigger risk takers than our female counterparts. And we don't, uh, <laughs> we don't in general, eat as healthy as they do either, right? <laughs> as evidenced by the passing over of, of the vegetables in, in order in, for another steak or ice cream or things like that, right? And men, uh, we also, <laughs> I can say this being a guy, we also do some very dumb things, right? <laughs> If you spend much time on the interwebs, there's this fun corner of the internet devoted to visual evidence for the reasons why women live longer than men. <laughs> Take a look at a few of these here, right? <laughs> yeah, that's just one of them, right? Here's another one. <laughs> Changing a light bulb boy up there using two legs. I'm, I'm sure they're bolted together. I'm sure it's very, very safe. Anybody done this before? I've done this. <laughs> Multiple tables and ladders on top of them, things of, of that nature. Uh, what about this one? <laughs> this one's kind of tricky to see, but uh, yeah, there's a ladder there, there's a guy has a human scaffolding, and then another guy there on top, and then there's this guy over here. I think you can see him between those two trusses. That might be Caleb Dahl, if I'm not mistaken, right? <laughs> He's up there. Uh, here's another reason, another one too. Uh, this one's kind of hard to see as well, but it's, uh, he's grinding some metal there, and he's got a plastic bag over his head. <laughs> Safety first, right? Uh, here's another one involving ladders and painting over a stairwell. Yeah, uh, I like this one too. I like this one too. One guy working down in a manhole, the other one very, very safely holding his legs <laughs> so he doesn't fall in. And then a similar thing here with these two guys, one of them working outside, and the other one's got a rope attached to his waist holding him in case he falls, right? Uh, here's, a, here's another one, too. Uh, <laughs> 
can't find any shade, you make your own, right? <laughs> Prop up that, uh, that excavator, that bulldozer, and sit underneath it. <laughs> and then this one may, might be my favorite here, right? <laughs> Lowering a couch, instead of carrying it down the stairs, meh, just lower it off the balcony. I mean, I'm sure those two guys will be, be fine, no problem, right? They got that, right? <laughs> Right? I joke and we laugh, but uh, death is really uh, not something to take lightly in, in any uh, stretch of the imagination. And the death of a spouse or, or in general the death of any loved one, any close friend is no joking matter. Their, their absence leaves a gaping hole in your heart and in your life that isn't ever really filled. When a spouse dies, it isn't something you just get over like a cold or a sore throat. The process of grief is long, it's complex, and it looks different for each person as they grieve those who have died. And often it's a process that doesn't ever really end. It changes and it morphs as time goes on. But, but for many, the, the impression that a, that a spouse or a loved one makes in your heart and in your life never goes away. And by the way, uh, Pastor Lloyd mentioned it already this morning, but... Uh, if you have lost a loved one in the last year or so, we are having that grief share event on November 20th. And it's a wonderful opportunity to gather with others who have lost loved ones in this last year or so and talk through some of those things, talk through that grief process. So get plugged in in that. I would encourage that. But as we begin uh, chapter 5 of, of uh, 1 Timothy, uh, Paul's train of thought here is going to be shifting a little bit. Again, we've, been, we've been, in, been in 1 Timothy for a little while, and we approach chapter 5 now. And as he gets to chapter 5, he begins to talk with Timothy, uh, giving him some instructions for how to interact with some very specific groups of people uh, within his congregation at Ephesus. Look back at verse 1 and 2. And we read and we studied these last week, so I won't have you stand just yet. But by way of reminder, this is what Paul says in verses 1 and 2. He says, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, in all purity. And then last week, Pastor Lloyd led us through these verses and those interactions, and so I don't need to take time to repeat each one. But the gist of, of what Paul is getting at is that we need to be treating those within the church as members of our family and members of the family that you actually love and as members of the family that you actually like. Sometimes there's a difference there. In our sermon text for this morning, Paul goes on to give some specific instructions for interacting with, with another group of people within the congregation at Ephesus. In verses 3 through 16, verses we'll look at here this morning, Paul instructs Timothy and the church in how to interact with widows within the congregation. We'll see in this text that the care for widows, especially for those widows within your own family, is a demonstration and an outpouring uh, and the overflowing, really, of God's love for you. So if you have your Bibles and you haven't found 1 Timothy chapter 5, I'd encourage you to do that. It's found on page 933 of your pew Bible or it's on page 16 of that black scripture journal that you got. But would you stand this morning out of reverence for the word of the Lord as I read? Again, reading in Jesus' name, 1 Timothy chapter 5, beginning at verse 3. Honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return for their parents, 
For this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers day and night. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, especially for the members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a good reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work, but refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander, for some have already strayed after Satan. If a believing woman who has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened, so that they may care for those who are truly widows." Amen. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, Lord God, this is your word. And you gave it almost 2,000 years ago from from Paul to Timothy and to the congregation at Ephesus. And it's still as true and as vital and important today as it was back then. Lord, we ask that you would give us wisdom today to uh, open up this text and to see it. Lord, uh, I ask that you would uh, bless the words of my mouth and the meditations of every present heart. May they be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. As we read this text, we're going to notice that there are two truths that are going to emerge. There are actually more than that, but I'm going to summarize it, this passage, in this way. Uh, First, in verses 3 through 8, Paul talks about widows and their needs. And then in verses 9 and following, he talks about widows and their work. And so to rightly understand widows and their need, we first need to understand the widow's plight. The widow's plight. In the first century A.D., widows had it pretty rough. Often for women in this demographic, uh, gainful employment was very, very hard to come by. There wasn't a way that they could support themselves or provide for their own needs. In that era, if a woman worked, she often helped or assisted her husband in whatever trade he was employed in, as a shopkeeper or a tent maker or an innkeeper. Whatever the husband did, did, the wife would do. And when the husband died, the business passed down to the sons. The widow wasn't expected to work or to own a business. And so in some cases even, she wasn't even allowed to work. And, of course, there was also the lack of the modern welfare state that we have become so familiar with. Nobody had yet dreamed up institutions like the Social Security Administration. 401Ks and Roth IRAs were non-existent. There were no pension plans for retirement. There were no life insurance plans to receive financial benefit in the event of a spouse's death. Widows were, in reality, left to fend for themselves. And they needed to rely on charity, on the love and kindness and support of others. And naturally, the duty of of caring for a widow would fall on the family or the nearest relative. 
But there were some widows who, as Paul put it a couple of different times in this text, were truly widows. They had no family to provide for them, no extended family they could call on. These were the widows whose plight was the most severe. With nobody to care for them, they turned to the Lord God for support. That's what Paul says. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers day and night. And praise be to the Lord. His heart is for the down and out and for the marginalized and the oppressed. He cares. The Lord God is the defender of the widows. His heart is for widows, and that heart is revealed all throughout Scripture. Uh, Take, for example, this uh, commandment from Exodus 22, just a few chapters after the Lord gave the Ten Commandments. he He says this, He says, You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them, they will cry out to me, and I will surely hear their cry, and my wrath will burn, and I will kill you with the sword, and your wives shall become widows, and your children fatherless. Those are some pretty strong words from the Lord, aren't they? Listen also then to these words from Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 10. For the Lord your God is God of God and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribes. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow, and he loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. A really vivid example of God's love and care and concern for orphans is, uh, and widows, I'm sorry, for widows, also for orphans as well, but uh, for widows, it's the, the, the narrative of Ruth. Right? Remember Ruth from the Old Testament? As Ruth provides for Naomi, the Lord is providing for Ruth through Boaz. The Lord defended them. The Lord provided for these widows. And Jesus' heart was also a defender of widows. He had a heart of compassion for them. Uh, When the widow of Nain lost her son, her only son, Jesus was moved with compassion for her and and raised her dead son to life. And then later on, when a, a different widow gave her last two small copper coins at the temple, Jesus declared that her gift outweighed all other gifts that day because she had given her all and out of, out of her heart. And this pattern and care and concern for widows uh, came to the early church as well. Uh, James, the brother of Jesus, wrote that religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. And then in Acts chapter 6, one of the first problems that the early church had to solve uh, dealt with how to take care of the growing number of widows in their congregation and the daily distribution of food for those widows. And from what we can gather, a very similar thing was happening uh, at the congregation in Ephesus where Timothy was serving. They were doing so well at taking care of the widows that that eventually there were so many widows on the church welfare program that it began to put a strain on the rest of the church finances. Discussions must have happened around coffee tables uh, about what to do. Boards and subcommittees were convened to brainstorm problem-solving solutions, but nobody could arrive at a suitable answer uh, to the question of what do we do with all of these widows? And so Paul had to intervene and get some, set some tough boundaries here for the church. And first and foremost, Paul says that the care of widows should not default to the congregation. Widows, their first line of support should be their own family. In verse 5, he says this again. Look at this. He says, 
But, but if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. The charge from Paul to the children and to the grandchildren of widows is to take care of them. Take care of your own mother, your own grandmother. And there are at least three reasons why Paul says that uh, uh, widows' children and grandchildren should be the, perf the first to provide for that widow. First and foremost, Paul says, it allows them to show, to demonstrate godliness to their own household. We looked at some references from both the Old Testament and the New Testament that showed God's heart for widows and his commands for believers to, to show care and compassion and concern for them. And there are dozens of places that we could have looked as well. Taking care of, of the widows in, the, in your own family allows you to demonstrate your godliness, your faith, your, your piety, your religion to others. It says, yes, I believe in God. And this is one of the outpourings of that faith. There's a second reason that Paul gives in, in telling uh, Timothy why families need to care for widows, and it's that they need to make some return to their parents. Some return to their parents. Uh, recently, the Brookings Institute uh, out of Washington, D.C., as they worked with numbers from the USDA, uh, the Brookings Institute estimated that the average cost of raising a child uh, uh, born in 2015, and they, they estimated it out all the way to 2017. And this particular study uh, was interesting to me because uh, our daughter was born in 2015. And so I want to know how much is it going to cost her to raise her to age 17? The average cost of raising a child born in 2015 to age 17, again, according to the Brookings Institute, is $310,000. And that cost includes diapers and food and health care and clothing and child care, a car, gasoline, insurance, various activities and events, $310,000. Now, there are a number of factors that go into that equation, and I'd wager to bet that, that many of you raising your children did it for cheaper than $310,000 each. I know I hope to, and Liz does as well, right? But, but regardless of the dollar amount, for many of you, your parents invested heavily in you. Mom and dad took care of you as a baby. They changed your diapers. They wiped your bum they cleaned up your vomit. They worked hard to put food on the table, even if you didn't appreciate the food that they brought to the table. Uh, they bought you clothes and supplies for school. They sponsored your school trips. They, they endured listening to you attempt to learn the clarinet. They washed your clothes. They made your bed. They taught you how to say please and thank you. And a million other things we could put in there, right? And Paul says to those in Ephesus that it's high time that they started giving back to their parents. They need to receive a return on the investment that they have made in you. Their parents took care of them. Now, Paul says, in their old age, you need to take care of your parents. And there's a, a third reason that a family should care for the widows for the, uh, in their own family and in their extended family. It ties in very closely with the first. The very simple reason we should care for widows within our own family, this pleases the Lord God. His heart, again, is for widows, for the orphans, for the downcast, for the oppressed, for the refugees, for the nobodies, for those who struggle with their own identity. He wants them to know him and his love 
through Jesus. He wants them to know what a life transformed and informed by his word can look like. And it pleases him when his people minister and share this love with the least of these. And finally, Paul has some harsh words for those who do not take care of members of their of their own household, take care of their own relatives. He says in verse 8, he says, but if anyone does not provide for his relatives, especially for the members of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Ouch. That's a pretty stinging rebuke, isn't it, from the apostle Paul. And as Paul talks about denying the faith, I don't think he has apostasy and loss of eternal salvation in mind. Uh, one can commit the sin of neglecting your parents in their own age, old age and still be a Christian. I think a, a denial of the faith in this regard is a denial of, a, of the teachings of the Christian church on this issue. Denying the faith means that you are neglecting the very clear teachings of how Christians are supposed to act towards their parents. Denying the faith means that you are shunning nearly 2,000 years of, of church teaching and over 1,500 years of Old Testament law. And Paul says that even pagans... Unbelievers who can be motivated by their own self-interest. Pagans were known to take care of their own. And if you, a believer in Jesus Christ, who have been bought and redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, cannot take care of your own family, Paul says you're worse than an unbeliever. In the end, if you cannot take care of your own mother or your own mother-in-law who has been widowed, that reality is, is probably a demonstration of your own greed and your own self-centeredness. And no, I get it. Your mom, your grandma, they weren't perfect, and Paul would probably say the same thing. Some of you have, have suffered real abuse or neglect at the hand of your own mother, and those hurts are real, and they should not be minimized or swept under the rug. They need to be dealt with, but you also need to be reconciled. There needs to be forgiveness and restoration of that relationship. Christian, Jesus Christ gave all for you. He gave his life in exchange for yours. He died for you in your place and on your behalf to cleanse you of your sin. He paid that debt of sin that you can never even imagine to repay. He forgave your sin, your endless pile of sin that, last, that, lasting, that left that lasting stain on your soul. He forgave you, even though you wronged him. And in turn, and in gratitude to the Lord, we who have been redeemed ought to demonstrate that same self-sacrificial love towards others, especially towards those in our own household, especially towards those who have invested and sacrificed so much for us. We've looked at, at widows and their needs. In the next part of this passage, verses 9 through 16, I, I'd summarize it this way. Uh, widows and their work. I won't take time to reread the entire passage, but look again at verses 9 and 10. Uh, again, here Paul says, Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation of good works. The question becomes, well, what is, what is Timothy supposed to enroll these widows in? 
And as I read commentaries this week in preparation for this sermon, the, the commentators were all over the map. Uh, they were more divided than America during midterm elections. <laughs> what are these widows supposed to be enrolled in? And um, the first reading of this passage, it might seem to indicate that Paul is listing out the qualifications for eligibility in this church's assistance program for widows. It's almost as if he's saying, okay, Timothy, you've got too many widows that you're caring for. Uh, we've narrowed it down by eliminating those who have family to support them. Let's further narrow down those eligibility requirement, requirements by adding some other qualifications on top of that. I'd be hard-pressed, though, to believe that Paul would be advocating to, to not support a widow uh, who wasn't quite old enough, right? Imagine that 59-year-old lady uh, who uh, just wasn't quite 60. I can't imagine Paul telling Timothy, you know, just, just tell Mavis that uh, since you've got nobody to support her and that she uh, hasn't had a good meal in three weeks, it doesn't really matter. Come back in one month, then you'll be 60. I, I, can't, I can't imagine Paul advocating anything like that. Um, I would like to think that the congregation's assistance program that was kind of talked about in the first bunch of verses wasn't discriminatory based on age. I think the enrolling of widows in, in verses 9 here is, is pointing to something else. Uh, we'll get to that in, in a little bit here. But another suggestion that has been made uh, is that Paul was instructing Timothy to uh, begin some sort of convent for these widows. A convent is a, a community of nuns, right, who have come together, withdrawn from the world. Some of the earliest convents date from the late 200s and early 300s as, as Christians began to withdraw from the world, awaiting the return of Christ. So is Paul advocating some sort of pre-convent invention here? I, I don't believe so. There was nowhere else in Scripture where Paul promoted an ascetic life, a life where you withdraw from society and, society and sit idly by just waiting. It was quite the opposite, opposite, in fact, for Paul. He warned those in the church of Thessalonica not to be idle as they waited for the return of Christ. And he went as far as saying, if you don't work, you don't eat. Right? Withdrawing from the noise and busyness of life once in a while is a good spiritual discipline. Even Jesus himself did that. But to completely remove yourself from society is to take the light that you have been given to shine and to place it in a dark room all by itself. It's to keep the salt in the salt shaker. No, we were created to be in community with others, both believers and non-believers. Some scholars believe that Paul here is hinting at some sort of uh, deaconess role for these widows. He, he might have made a passing references to deaconesses in, in chapter 3 as he goes through some of the qualifications for leadership within the congregational setting, but there's, there's nothing connecting that discussion with this here in chapter 5. So it seems most likely, and many scholars contend this, that uh, Paul, when, when Paul is talking about enrolling widows, he's referring to some sort of discipleship or some sort of mentorship role. And, and it seems to me that this is the most likely, the best, the simplest solution of what's going on in verses 9 through 16. And the logic might go something like this. If the congregation is supporting these widows financially, let's put them to work. And that's kind of what's laid out then in verses 9 through 16 some qualifications for, for this mentorship, uh, for this discipleship role for widows who are being supported by the church. 
And Tertullian was an early Christian apologist, an early defender of the faith. He lived in the late 100s, the early 200s. And as he comments on this passage, he said this. He said that the task of these women was that their experienced training in all the afflictions and trials of life may have rendered them capable of readily assisting all others with counsel and comfort. I think what Tertullian is advocating, and many scholars believe this as well, is the idea of this established mentorship, discipleship role for widows. These mentor widows would be able to give advice to the younger widows and to support the work of the church in various capacities. So what were the qualifications for this mentorship, discipleship uh, role for these widows? Paul lays them out in verses 9 and 10. And he says, first, the first requirement uh, for this mentorship, discipleship role of widows, by widows, for widows, was that the mentor widow would need to be older than 60. All right, this, uh, this points to her maturity, not just that she's old physically, right? I don't think that's what Paul was getting at, but spiritually mature. Yes, this, this mentor widow was somebody who has been through the ups and downs of life but is now able to see them from a Christian perspective and to help guide others through these things. The second qualification would be that she would be the husband of one wife. And this is the, the flip side of the, of the same coin that Paul laid out uh, for deacons and overseers earlier in chapter 3. There he mentioned that that qualification for a deacon for an overseer was that the deacon had to be the husband of one wife. The desire here is that these widow mentors would have been faithful to their husbands while their husbands were still alive. Um, and much, yeah, much like that same command that applied to deacons and overseers, it probably apply here too in the case of the death of her first husband and a new marriage. But this requirement would exclude a widow who had been divorced and remarried or was involved in a polygamous marriage or otherwise sexually immoral relationship. Wife of one husband. The third qualification for enrollment in this membership discipleship role of widows is that she would have a reputation for good works. When people heard her name, they went, ah, yeah, I know her. I like her. She's always been so helpful to me. And then Paul lists five examples of good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the, feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, has devoted herself to every good work. Most scholars don't believe that this was an exact checklist that needed to be filled out. I think Paul mentions them because they summarize the, the nurturing spirit, the kindness, the humility, the compassion, and the faithfulness that they were looking for uh, in these widows to be mentors to younger gals. And even if this isn't an exact checklist, it is no doubt in a lofty ambition. There was one restriction that Paul had for the list of, of mentor widows and that's that they could not be younger widows. They could not be younger widows. Uh, far from being sexist or ageist or a male chauvinist, I think Paul was a realist more than anything. He knew, and probably from personal firsthand experience, that loneliness is hard. Loneliness is hard. The empty house is quiet. And the desire for company and companionship can be strong. And it's such a strong pull, I think, because it's a God-given desire. It is not good that a man should be alone. It is not good that a woman should be alone. 
And so Paul, who so often advocated that Christians remain single, he now advocates that these young widows uh, not be enrolled as mentor widows, but he encourages them to get married again. He knew that they were, there were a whole host of sinful temptations that would come with it if they remained single. And gossip and idle hands are, are not just a, a woman-only problem. Men, we struggle too with keeping our traps shut and our hands busy at times, don't we? When the time is right, these gals, whether they were married or single, could be spiritual mentors to others. You know, I am, as I look back on my own life, I am so grateful for the number of mentors that I have had in my life. Guys like John Walker, Ritter, Chad Jankard, Captain Kirk, Papa Paul, Big Al, Pastor Lloyd, others as well come to mind as well. And, And you know, we all, whether we're a guy or a gal, whether we're young or we're old, We all need a spiritual mentor that we can confide in. Someone of the same gender who's been a Christian longer than us that we can share life with. Many of you, I know, find that sort of companionship in one of our small groups here at Maranatha, whether it's the small group Bible study, WMF, Men's Breakfast, Men's 33, Young Adults. And I don't know if you have somebody discipling you or a group that you are involved in, but I'd encourage you to get plugged in in that regard. We all need a mentor in our lives. In our sermon text, Paul talked about widows who were truly widows, those who had no children or grandchildren to take care of her. These widows, he, he noted, had set their hope squarely on the Lord God alone. And as we close this morning after a word of prayer, our hymn, My hope is built on nothing less. Talks about that hope that we have, uh, not just uh, just widows, but the hope that we all have in God. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, Lord, I do again thank you for this morning, for our time together. I thank you for this text and for the uh, principles that it laid down. Lord, and we ask that you would be with us as we seek to live this out in our lives, in our communities, with our own families. Uh, Give us wisdom in that regard. In Jesus' name.